You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. So we're continuing our series in uh, the book of Hosea, and the first uh, chapter, the Lord commanded Hosea to take to him an adulterous wife and conceive three children who acted as signs of impending judgment and doom. But at the very end, uh, in verses 10 through 11, that all of those children's names were almost inverted, or the opposite came to be that God would once again show them mercy, though that doesn't negate the punishment and judgment that was coming. And so Hosea's message, it continues. Uh, So starting in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face, and her adultery from between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked, and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore, she has conceived them, and has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread, and my water, my wool, and my flax, my oil, and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, And I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. For it is better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil. And who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore I would take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vineyards and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offering to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. We'll stop there and pick up with the latter half of chapter 2 next Sunday evening. Well, a few uh, notes of housekeeping. It can become uh, confusing when we use the word Israel uh, because we can mean uh, Israel in the sense of the, uh, the nation of Israel during the time of Christ and the apostles. Uh, this would have actually predominantly been the southern kingdom coming back from exile. Here, when we use Israel, we are now speaking of Israel more of as Samaria, as the, the ten tribes that broke away that are distinct from Judah and Jerusalem. And so it is a little bit confusing to use the word Israel in multiple means, and maybe I should try to just use the word Samaria when we're speaking of them. But as we come to chapter 2 of Hosea, a little bit of context. Israel uh, has broken away from Judah. The, tra- the, the kingdoms are split. And as we, we heard about yesterday, Hosea is a prophet predominantly sent 
to the northern kingdom that is acting in a manner that is far worse than their southern neighbors. Uh, they have set up idols at the, the top and the bottom of their country, uh, preventing and, and desiring that the, the Israelites no longer go down to Jerusalem to worship God, but rather worship these golden cow statues of Baal. They have, have integrated the idolatry of the, the nations that they dispossessed and brought them into the worship of God. And this type of perverted worship has so corrupted and changed them that no longer, as you see in our text, no longer do they believe that God has given them all these blessings, but they have seen these blessings as if they were given from these idols. And so we have this discussion here, this, this pleading that the Lord has with his people, that they're, they're pictured that there's this husband who is faithful and providing all that his wife could need, and yet she abandons him for other lovers. It's a, it's a graphic picture. Hosea one, chapter 1 starts with this faithful Jew who is told to marry a woman who will break his heart, who will commit, idol, commit adultery, who has likely already committed adultery. And he is to, to marry her and to have these children. And it's a picture, as we'll see in chapter 3. She is even unfaithful when she's married to Hosea. And it's a picture of the way in which the Lord is, is the way in which Israel is relating to God. That God is the faithful husband who has done everything in his power to care for and love his people. And his people have abandoned him every step of the way. Whether they have sought other means uh, through idolatry to gain the things that they need or in their economic prosperity have abandoned the Lord and said, these are the things that I deserve for what I have done. And while Hosea was written 800 B.C., I think when we see it that way in which material prosperity has driven them to, to to forsake the Lord that we can see, especially in the West, how material prosperity, people look at that and say, this is what I deserve. I have wrought this with my own hand. I have no need of God. And so we come to chapter 2, which has God pleading with his people to return, to repent, and to come back. And so we'll look at Yahweh's plea, the Lord's plea in verses 1 through 13. There's an introduction here. He says, speak to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. And again, he's inverting the names of the children that were born to Hosea previously. One of the child uh, was named No Mercy, and the other child was named Not My People as signs of, of impending judgment upon them, that Israel would no longer receive mercy, that Israel would no longer be God's people. And again, those names are then inverted that they will receive mercy, that they will be called children of the living God. And so here it's, it's pictured as if these children are speaking to other siblings. It's possible that Gomer had other children prior to her marriage to Hosea. And it's this used in a sense as a, as a rhetorical device. It's as if we're seeing faithful Israelites trying to speak to the, the nation as a whole. God is calling them to speak to the nation. In verse 2, plead with your mother, plead. He's calling these Israelites to, to call the nation back, to be reminded of the, the covenant, the promise, which was much like a, a wedding ceremony for Israel. 
But it, it, unlike a traditional wedding ceremony today, this one being the, the people being united to God had blessings for obedience, but curses for disobedience. And really what we see here, that's what's about to happen to Israel is that they're going to face those covenant curses. And so chapter 2, as we'll, we'll look at uh, tonight and next Sunday, there, we, we really have this bookend of mercy and being the Lord's people. So in, in verse 1 of chapter 2, it's bringing up what came from chapter 1 with this reversal, but also actually at the very end in verse 23, it speaks of them again as receiving mercy and, spe- and being God's people. And so when we see the, the judgment, the exile, the punishment that is coming to the people, it, it should be seen in the light of these bookends of promise and of mercy, that even this judgment that's coming should be seen in the light of mercy, which we'll see throughout our text this evening. And so the Lord begins with his pleas to Israel that she would choose honor rather than being uh, uh, put to shame amongst the nations in verses 2 through 3. It's again, it's, 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 a, it's a word picture here as if Israel has so uh, completely stopped uh, refusing to listen to God and the prophets that he sent that now God is enlisting these children, other people, to speak to the nation, to realize that this relationship has been broken. Look at the way verse 2 speaks of it. Plead with your mother, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. And it's not as if God has cast off these people. Because throughout chapter 2 and and really the rest of Hosea and the rest of Scripture, it is God alone who is seeking his people. He is the one who has, in his love, sent the Lord Jesus Christ into this world. He is the one who who is seeking to bring his wayward bride back. What is happening here is the reason that she is no longer his wife and he is no longer her husband is because of her sin, her abandonment of God. That Israel has abandoned God for her lovers or her idols. And if Israel does not heed the voice of her children, as she has not heeded the voice of her God, God will be forced to punish her. Right? If she does not put away her whoring from my face or her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness and a parched land and kill her with thirst. Right, it's publicly bringing shame upon Hosea that his wife is formerly potentially a, a prostitute or a, a whore, and she has all of this baggage that she has brought into this marriage, and, and she's bringing shame upon Hosea in the same way Israel and, and, and going after idols is bringing shame upon themselves and upon God. And so God is saying, if, if that is what you are going to do, then I will bring that shame upon you, which you seem so desirous to do, and this public shame of her being stripped naked on public display for what she has done, metaphorically speaking of the way in which God will eventually remove everything from Israel. and The nations will be able to look on and see as Israel collapses that her trust, that her trust in her idols proved false. She will be publicly exposed to shame. And that this this desolation that is coming, you'll see in verses 9 through 12, as the Lord continues to remove things, that this is a a very real and present threat. 
And Hosea, speaking from the Lord, seems to use here nakedness in, in two different ways, speaking one of just the public shame of it all, but also the, the, the being of, of destitute, lacking even clothing. He switches metaphors from this to this wilderness and parched land of dying of thirst. That Israel has lost everything. You can imagine not even having the clothes on her back. And I think Hosea continues to demonstrate this, that God is merciful. And we know the rest of that verse, and slow to anger. But I think the important word here that we're seeing in Hosea is that being slow to anger doesn't mean he isn't angry. That he doesn't bring forth justice, that he isn't angry over sin. Right? We, we get angry when we see sin in this world, such as injustice, such as murder, wars. And in many ways, we should be more incensed over the sins in our own heart. But if we are that way, what does it must be for God who is holy in all that he is? When he looks at our sins and the sins of the world, what is it that he must be feeling and thinking? Hosea is trying to get us to feel that when he speaks of it as spiritual adultery. Because it's easy to hear teaching about what sin is. It's harder to really feel that. But for those of us who have been married, to think of what it would be like to be a faithful and loving spouse and for that spouse to abandon you and bring shame upon you and really hate you is really meant to be the picture of we who are sinners in the way we relate to God. Well, after Yahweh pleads to his wife, to Israel, in verses 4 through 5, he, he brings a charge not only against the mother, but actually against all of her children. The same children who were supposed to call their mother back, uh, God himself then indicts these children upon her children I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. The children who are supposed to call their mother to repent, the, the faithful Israelites who are supposed to call the nation back, they are also just as guilty. They are just as guilty. All right, we're moving from an in, a corporate identity to, to individual identity here. That these Israelites make up uh, the entirety of the nation, and the entire nation is sinful, which means that every Israelite is being viewed together through that lens. We can also think even of the way in which it, it's, it's playing out through the generations. That Israel as a whole are teaching their children what it means to worship idols and abandon Yahweh. And their children are seeing this and following in their, their parents' footsteps as each generation sinks lower and lower. And so these children are born in these shameful circumstances. And really here, what, what I think Hosea is helping us see is he's, he's helping the Israelites who are listening, who may be agreeing with what he says. Yes, we understand the nation has fallen to such such a, a, a depth. And the Lord here through Hosea is saying, yes, they have, but you are all culpable in this. 
And the implications is they, they won't escape the impending judgment. They won't escape the exile that's coming. And here we have then this interesting phrase in which Israel is pictured as uh, this shameful woman responding, speaking up for herself in verse 5. She responds for, she said, I will go after my lovers who gave me bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. This really hits the, the, the nail on the head here. This is the way in which Israel views all of the things that she has, all of this economic prosperity. You can count the amount of me and my in this verse. Anyone who's ever seen little children speak of things, it's mine. You know, especially little toys, they're, they're mine. They may not like them, but as soon as someone else plays with them, suddenly they belong to them. They're their toys. Here, Israel is pictured as saying, all of this, all of these blessings are mine, which God will turn around for them. It's her, her, her lovers. She views whether it's the, the foreign powers or the idol or the economic prosperity. She believes that all of these are providing her security, that all of these good gifts are due her like wages that a prostitute earns. Hosea will bring this up in verse 12. And just all of this economic prosperity, she believes that she deserves it, she earns it because of her worship of Baal. And again, I think we, we see this so prevalent today. With so much prosperity, it's by my toil, my blood, my sweat, my intellect, my power, my connections. That's the reason that I deserve all of these things. I have built this empire with my own hands. I have worked so hard. I deserve all of this. Instead of the reality of it, again, which Hosea will bring out, that all of these are good gifts from God, never to be turned into idols that we worship. And so now, what is God supposed to do with his wayward wife? I mean, he could just completely write her a writ of divorce and you know, wash his hands of her and, and, and let her just continue on in her sin. But it is interesting to see that that is not what he does. In verses 6 through 8, he, he frustrates the plans. He frustrates the plans in verses 6 through 8. In verse 6, it's him, it, the Lord pictured as she will desire to run after all of these lovers. The Lord says, therefore, I will build a hedge with, with thorns. I will build a wall against her. I will build this whole area to... And, and, prevent her from running after other idols, building this wall and even placing thorns upon it that she couldn't even climb over it. So the Lord is, is, is basically cutting off all access. The picture is Israel is running to and fro, trying to run after these other lovers. She is pictured as being active in her sin, She's desiring, it's her heart's desire to run headlong into sin. And yet it's God who sets up the barriers, the walls, so that she cannot find her path. And if you just think about this point, is this good or bad for Israel? Is this good or bad? Because from, from Israel's perspective, she would be looking at this as a, as a bad thing. She is being prevented from what she wants and believes that she deserves. 
It's her absolute desire to sin, and she wants this. And this is what she believes would make her happy. And so she would look at this as a, as a bad thing. The Lord is actively preventing her from getting what she wants. It's fascinating. And yet, if we were to, to turn the perspective of the camera, if you will, and, and say, well, what does God, how does God view this? Well, he views this as this is a good thing. This is a good thing that he is acting in a manner that is kind, gentle, and loving. And this is all part of his plan to reclaim her. And a parallel to this, right, is the prevention of sin is a good thing. That's why we have laws and or supposed to have laws enacted that prevent sin. All sorts of examples could be lobbied that we could bring up. But really, right, we, we, we desire a government that would be in such a way as preventing sin, not in a sense allowing it. It is good it is good for sin to be prevented. And so Israel now is completely cut off. She cannot pursue her lovers. She cannot overtake them. She cannot seek them. She cannot find them. And so here she is pictured as just giving up. Like, oh, well, I should return to my first husband for it was better for me than it was now. But unlike the prodigal son, she doesn't actually seem to be as if she's really repented at all. Because again, she, she is only focused on herself. It is better for me that I return. And God then reminds her. And she did not know. She had no knowledge of it, somehow, that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. God had provided for them, given them all of these many good gifts. And not only did she turn around thinking that she deserved them and going after other gods to gain more of them, but she took the blessings that God had given them and turned them into idols. She took God's good gifts and turned them into hideous abominations. In verses 9 through 13... Yahweh threatens to remove creation's blessings. There's several therefores in our text. This is the second one in verse 9. Therefore, because she did not know these things, therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were used to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. So God hemmed Israel in to prevent her from worshiping Baal in order to cut off her access to these other lovers. And now he's taking away the economic prosperity that they so trusted in. He's removing it from them. And in contrast, again, Israel, like a petulant child, saying all of this is mine, God rightfully shows that all of this was his, and he graciously gave it to them. And then she will be publicly shamed. Again, she will trust in her idols and shown to the world that this was a very bad gamble on her part. In her hour of need, she'll look for them, but they won't be there. And so then the, the feast days, their times of, of mirth and celebration will be taken away from them for several reasons. There'll be nothing to celebrate with and nothing to celebrate for. They'll have no food and drink. 
to celebrate. And there's nothing that they could celebrate. Baal's power will be stripped from him. This, this false god will show, be shown to be a not god. And Israel will have nothing to celebrate. And again, in verse 12, Israel has been viewing all of these prosperity that they have as if they have come from God. These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. So Israel has abandoned the Lord. It is not that God has abandoned her. And so that's the the picture that we have here. And I will punish her for the feast days of Baal, which she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers. And finally, the closing words from tonight, and forgot me, declares the Lord, and forgot me. So as we we come here this evening, I think it is important to just stop and, and sit here in the text, in a sense to sit in sin Because I've struggled with how to divide up this chapter because verses 14 through 23 are all about the mercy that God will do in restoring his people. Chapter 3, again, about mercy. But a lot of Hosea's point is to get us to feel the right way about sin. To get us to feel the right way about it. Because, I mean, think about how do we feel about sin and holiness. We know in many ways what is right and what is wrong. We know what sin is. And we know that we should be pursuing holiness. And we could probably have several weeks of lectures of what it means to be holy and what sin is. And Hosea is certainly giving a strong and stern lecture. But what's happening in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is that it's being vividly portrayed to the people of Israel what sin looks like and how God feels about it. And Hosea really wants to pull you into the action so that you feel the way that God feels about it. Because we see the the three children in chapter 1. We see the infidelity that's still in Hosea's marriage with his wayward wife. And we see in chapter 2, God speaking to his bride who is in sin, who refuses to acknowledge him and yearns to leave him. And so Hosea shows forth what sin feels like to God and why holiness in our lives are so important. I mean, think about this. Jesus said, you are to love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, and soul. Everything about you is to love God. Are you that type of person? Or are you more like Gomer or Israel? content with the blessings, but not the person. I think it was John Piper who had said, if you, if you got to heaven, if you arrived in heaven and Jesus wasn't there, would that bother you? Do we serve God for the blessings and for escaping of punishment? Do we, do we serve and love him because he is the greatest good, the greatest person, the, the greatest being in all the world? And then from that relationship flows forth all of these blessings as we are adopted as sons and daughters of him. The second thing that Hosea wants to bring forth to us is really this concept of God as a jealous God. And that that jealousy that he has is actually to be a comfort for us. 
Oftentimes we think of jealousy as, 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 a, as, a, as something that we shouldn't have. We shouldn't be jealous of what other people have. Well, sure, that is correct and good. But jealousy can be a good thing because it indicates what you care for. And again, if we come back to the, to, uh, the analogy of a husband and wife, would it be a good husband who didn't care or was completely indifferent to the fact that his wife was having an affair? Would we consider that to be a good husband if he didn't care one way or the other what his wife did? Or if a wife, if she cared not at all about what her husband did, is that a good wife? Well, clearly the answer is no. That jealousy is actually the appropriate response because it means you care for the other person. And if that's the way that we respond, think of it in a much greater capacity, why would God not respond in the same way? Why would God not be jealous for the fact that we were created to have fellowship with him? And anything that diverts that fellowship is idolatry and it's bad. And we are sinful creatures. And what we see, too, in the book of Hosea is that this jealousy of the Lord is actually provoking him, not just for justice, though that they do deserve that, but also the activity that he is putting forth. Israel is running away. God is pursuing. God is hemming her in. God is pleading with her. Later on, he will speak of God as, as, as wooing her back, speaking tenderly to her. That he is the one who is going after her and ultimately, through the Lord Jesus Christ, transforming her into a radiant, holy bride. And again, isn't it interesting that the New Testament speaks of believers as the bride of Christ, as clothed in righteousness, cleansed of sin? And so the Lord here is showing forth what sin feels like to him. He's showing forth the importance of worship, which is why we looked at that, of the second commandment. That the way we worship is important because all of life is about worship. And so as we come morning and evening, right, we, we come to trust in the invisible God. The God who is always at work. The problem for Israel is that they stopped trusting an, in, an invisible God and started seeking their hope and their happiness and things that could be seen, whether they were idols or material prosperity. And Hosea is calling them back to a God who is transcendent, omnipotent, and all-powerful. And this God could never be represented by any earthly man-made thing. That's why he forbids idols, because they're too small. They're too inadequate. And so Hosea would have us here listen to the Lord sit for a bit in our sin, I think, in our spiritual adultery. As John Calvin said, as our hearts, they're like factories producing idols all the time. Hosea wants us to sit and feel what God feels when he looks at sin so that we can see the way he jealously gives rise to both his righteous anger but also his compassion. I think we can understand then, we know sin is breaking God's law, but it, it's more than that. It has an effect upon him. 
To him, sin is worse than spiritual adultery. It's truly cosmic treason. To, to, to God, the worst thing that he could conceive of in this universe, the most completely opposite thing to him, is sin. And do we sit and we think about that? Because that should then cause us to flee to Jesus Christ. For God has made a way for sinners like us that we could find mercy, reconciliation, and hope. Something we'll see more next Sunday. But for now, let us take hope in what Christ has done. Flee from our sin and come to the cross. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would be at work in us, causing us to pursue holiness, righteousness, goodness, justice, and truth. These very characteristics that we should share, but because of sin, we are darkened in our minds and in our hearts. So, Father, we pray, hear our prayers. Cause us to repent and to walk in newness of life. We ask all of this through Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S dot co dot U-K for more. Thank you.